the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Is globalisation over? That's our hot topic for this week. The answer, of course, is no. No, it's not. Not by any stretch. Rather, it has entered a new stage. While globalisation is retreating with respect to factory production and foreign investment, it's advancing quickly when it comes to the flow of services and ideas. That's the basic thesis of my guest this week, the renowned historian, economist and author Mark Levinson. His book, Outside the Box, presents an unorthodox history of globalisation. It shows that the international economic relationships we've known since the late 1980s, based on intricate, long-distance value chains, they are only a stage in the process of globalisation, a stage that was waning long before Trump, Brexit and COVID-19 hit us. But he contends that globalisation is far from over. Rather, it's moving to a stage in which the flow of ideas and services are going to be much more important than the flow of boxes filled with goods. Now, before we get to that, I'm going to need to start this week with a little historical context. But bear with me, because it's important. For those of you who've read Mark's books, you're going to understand that he writes a very, very compelling history of globalised trade, with the humble TU as the central character. I'm going to spare you the epic journey from industrialization through to the creation of post-World War treaties and onto the oil crises of the 1970s and the worldwide recession of the early 1980s. But I am going to start this week with what happened just after that, what Mark refers to as the third globalization, because in order to properly understand what's happening today, we need to understand what's changing and what's happened in the past. The third globalization is the age of long international supply chains. This began around 1987. It began because we had a confluence of container shipping, which reduced the cost of shipping a lot, a dramatic decline in the cost of telecommunications. You could afford to make an international phone call for the first time and a much improved computing. And now it was possible for a firm based in one country to actively manage a supply chain in another country or in several other countries to know daily what was being made, what was being sent where, what was being processed, what was being exported and imported. And so we started to see manufacturers use these changed cost factors to plant factories here and there and move goods in process from one country to another country. This is a dramatically different form of international relations than we'd ever seen before. Most of the growth in trade in this third globalization was actually trade in what economists call intermediate goods, things that have been partially manufactured, partially processed in one place and are going somewhere else for further processing. We'd never known something like this before, and this was really responsible for the dramatic growth in international trade. From 1987 till 2008, trade in manufactured goods grew more than twice as fast as trade as, as the world economy. And uh, the reason for that uh, is that these intermediate goods were being shipped around the world from one place to another. This was the great age of container shipping. This was the great age of China. This made China's growth as a world power possible. But all of this came to an end 
around the financial crisis of 2008. Uh, 2008 was the peak year for manufactured goods trade in, as a share of the world economy. Uh, 2007 was the peak year for cross-border investment as a share of the world economy. So long before COVID-19 and, and the pandemic, uh, there were already adjustments going on as firms began to back away from this model of globalization. I argue in the book that we're now entering a fourth phase of globalization in which trade in manufactured goods is just going to become less important as a share of the world economy. It's not going to go away by any means, but it's really going to be trade in services and trade in ideas that matters in the next phase of globalization, not moving boxes full of stuff around the world. So that takes us up to the precursor, to the current global supply crunch that we're going through today. We've been living through an era of mass production, propped up by deep global supply chains. The ubiquitous Apple iPhone, produced in the sprawling Zhengzhou Foxconn plant, uses components from more than 200 suppliers to make those phones, moving screens, microphones, and semiconductors around the world because cheap containerized shipping makes it economical to do so. And while the current supply chain crunch has rather exposed the fragility of those global supply chains, Mark argues that the world was retreating from manufacturing globalization long before COVID-19 came along and started disrupting demand and clogging ports. The evidence for that can be seen in the fact that we're seeing slower growth in manufactured goods trade. A big reason for this is that the explosion of trade in the 1980s, 1990s, the aughts, was due in part to a misjudgment of risk, in my opinion. Many companies made decisions to move production from one place to another based on differences in production costs and in transportation costs. They did not pencil in the possibility that their goods might not get delivered on time. They did not pencil in risk. And once we started to see supply chain failures cropping up, which they did from time to time, companies began to calculate that maybe globalization of manufacturing wasn't quite all that they had thought. That once you adjusted for the possibility that the goods won't be where they need to be when they need to be there, then maybe some of these shifts in production shouldn't have taken place. Maybe companies made some bad decisions about how to set up their supply chains. And I think companies were adjusting uh, their risk analysis well before COVID, and that has something to do with the slower growth in, in goods trade. What's happened with COVID, I think, is pretty clear. This is a matter of macroeconomic policy. It doesn't really have much to do with uh, shipping. Uh, it has to do with decisions by governments, uh, A, to stimulate their economies, and B, to make it difficult for consumers to spend on many sorts of services, both because of regulations and because people were afraid. People haven't been going out to dinner as much. They've been canceling holiday trips. They haven't been going to concerts. All of that money that used to go into services has been going into goods. And you can see in country after country, this 
really sudden and really large increase in spending on goods. Uh, this is going to go away as COVID recedes. People want to spend on services. People like going out to dinner. People enjoy going to concerts. People love to take vacation trips. And as they're able to do this sort of thing again, uh, we're going to see uh, these supply chain problems resolve themselves pretty quickly, I think, because there just won't be as much demand for uh, the manufactured goods as there has been during the pandemic. So we can expect an unwinding of that supply chain crunch. But continuing the theme we started in last week's edition of the podcast, things are not necessarily going to go back to normal. The shift from moving goods to spreading ideas and services, as Mark describes it, that has implications for shipping. And we could see some very different trade patterns emerging. I'm not sure what you mean by back to normal. Uh, the industry had come to take normal as very rapid growth in goods trade. Uh, that's why uh, after 2010, 2011, there was so much excess capacity in the industry. The industry built mega ships to accommodate growth in trade that didn't happen. Uh, the industry was anticipating that goods trade was going to continue to grow at twice the rate of the world economy. And instead, goods rate trade grew at perhaps half the rate of the world economy uh, after uh, 2008. So normal has been really excess capacity in the shipping industry for most of the past decade, with the exception of, of the past year, year and a half. Uh, where are we headed? Well, whether the industry is managing to control supply to address excess capacity is a question that's worth exploring. But I think normal uh, is going to be what started several years ago, which is that trade in goods will grow, but it will underperform the world economy. And I think that has obviously implications for the demand for shipping. I think we're also seeing shifts in production patterns and in consumption patterns that are going to change the demand for shipping uh, in terms of uh, specific countries, specific parts of the world. So I don't think that we're going back to the good old days of the early 2000s when uh, you could build a ship and be certain you'd be able to fill it. And that's an interesting view because going back to Mark's point about companies misjudging risk in how they were setting up supply chains, well, the obvious next response is for companies to start nearshoring or reshoring as they look to reduce risk and increase resilience. And yet we haven't really seen the economic data backing that trend up. I don't see reshoring as the main way firms are reducing risk in supply chains. I, the evidence that I've seen is that there's been very little reshoring in the sense of growth in manufacturing in the high wage countries. Um, that really is not happening very much. What we are seeing is that businesses are much more concerned about risk management for uh, obvious reasons. And so they are looking at diversifying production locations. Uh, they don't want to be dependent on a sole source for an input. They don't want to be dependent on a single factory to produce a key component. They want options so that if something goes wrong, they can serve their customers in another way. And this is going to result in uh, some change trade patterns. Uh, I don't think it follows from this that we're going to have uh, massive closure of plants in, in Asia and an opening of plants in Europe or, or North America. I don't think that's really what's on here. 
but perhaps the depth of the supply chains, the complexity that we've seen and the fragility of those supply chains, that all now needs to be addressed. We've seen a flurry of governments coming out over recent months insisting that supply chain resilience is now their primary focus. But in reality, there are few levers that can be easily pulled at a government level. The truth is, it will be very difficult to unwind this complex, labyrinthine era of the global supply chain that we've built the world economy around. So what are the tipping points? And what are the key changes that the industry needs to be alert for amid this period of flux? I think you're seeing um, companies look much deeper into their supply chains. Uh, it was certainly uh, the case that uh, many major manufacturers in industries like uh, automobiles or aircraft production, they were happy to look one or two tiers into their supply chains and no further. And they assumed that their key suppliers, their tier one suppliers, got things right. And then they had these very costly problems that were caused by a supplier who was maybe six tiers down, a supplier who was unknown at corporate headquarters. They had no idea that they were dealing with this company or what they were buying from this company or how they were vulnerable. So there's a lot of effort to, to clean things up. There's a lot of effort to take more control. Um, you know, for, for a number of years, uh, companies were told to focus on their strength and contract out everything else. And now you're seeing the reverse of that. You're seeing an increase in vertical integration again for the first time in several decades as firms want to have greater control uh, over their supply chains. Mm. So we may have fewer tiers. And you're starting to see actually some uh, efforts to centralize production in ways that haven't been done for a while. Uh, I would point you just as one example uh, to the recent announcement by Ford Motor that it's going to build a large electric vehicle complex in Tennessee, in the United States. It's building an integrated complex. Mm. It's not just building an assembly plant. It's got 6,000 acres. It's going to build a large production complex all in one piece. This is the sort of thing that companies haven't been doing for the past half century. Okay, And so what that means is that they're accepting perhaps higher production costs in some parts of uh, their production process in return for, for greater certainty that they'll have their parts when they want them and for reduced logistics costs. Uh, I think we're seeing more of that. So this has some implications for, for shipping too. Uh, I think already many ship lines have discovered that their clients want to talk to them about risk management. And that changes relationships in the industry. You know, it was not that uncommon just a few years ago that a, a ship line would bid for all of the business of a retailer or a manufacturer, it wants to be the exclusive supplier of ocean transportation services to this company. That's pretty much out the window now. Mm. The customers don't want an exclusive supplier of ocean transportation services. They want alternatives. They don't want everything to pass through the same port. They don't want everything to go along the same route. They don't want it to get from the port to uh, customers inland by uh, a single route. 
so all of these changes, I think, are forcing the, the ship lines to change uh, the way they relate to their customers and begin to offer them uh, a proposition that has something to do with uh, risk control. Risk control, of course, will not be a new concept to listeners of this podcast, but the historical view does offer some interesting perspective. The shipping industry does need to change. We know that. It needs to change in the way it goes about operating. It needs to increase transparency, visibility, efficiency, and obviously service reliability. The other takeaway from Mark's work, which is something we also touched on in last week's edition with Jan Hoffman and Peter Sand, is that the industry still has a tendency towards a pretty siloed view of getting goods from port A to port B. And these changes require a much more holistic view of the value chain and the risks inherent in it. The industry is going through an epoch shift on many levels, and basing future predictions on what has happened in the past is always a dangerous game. I think that uh, the historical perspective is quite useful here, uh, just because there's been an assumption that globalization was going to continue apace, that the world was going to become more and more interconnected in goods, in the form of goods trade. And that's really not what's happening at the moment. And again, I'm not saying goods trade is going to go away, not by any stretch. I think mm. it's probably going to continue to go for, grow for a bit, but I think there are reasons why I think it's going to be growing more slowly. Uh, I also think that there has to be more thought about how the the changing customer demands uh, are going to change the demand for shipping services. And and let me give you an example. Uh, We've got now in the uh, shipping area uh, the start of an equivalent to discount airlines. Mm. It has been the conventional wisdom now for 30 years that to be successful in the container shipping business, you needed to have a global network. Okay. That's what customers want. They want you to be able to carry their goods anywhere around the world. Well, that may not be the case anymore. We're starting to see uh, interest in shipping from companies that have not previously been in the maritime business. And they are serving uh, unique routes. Their idea is that maybe they can buy a ship or two, sail from here to there, and, and make some money doing it. Uh, They're not promising a connection at a major port. In fact, they're promising that you won't have to worry about a connection at a major port, just Mm. as a discount airline is promising you that you're not going to have to pass through Heathrow or Atlanta on the way to wherever you want to get. And and so there are people who are starting to nibble uh, at pieces of the business, uh, and and they weren't there uh, five or ten years ago. This is uh, a change. And and I think that this may uh, force some ship lines to think how they're serving uh, customers in certain places. Mm, Food for thought there, I hope. The conversation with Mark stretched over a good deal of history we didn't have time for in the podcast, and his thoughts on the factors that are going to make trade and manufactured goods less robust in the future are well worth checking out. Demographics and goods being transformed into services are the basic headlines as they all start eating away at demand for container ships. But I would urge you to read his book in more detail, Outside the Box, shipped to your desk in a matter of days at the mere click of a mouse, thanks to the humble container, and of course, Jeff Bezos. Anyway, that's it from the podcast for another week. I'm going to keep coming back to this topic, though, um, because it's interesting and it's important. I 
think it is going to be a major theme for the year. We're going to be looking for new ideas and innovative thinking on the future trends shaping shipping. So if you have any thoughts on stories you want looked at or fresh thinkers you want featured on the podcast, do drop me a line, richard.mead at informer.com. For now, though, from all of us at Lloyd's List, thanks for listening and have a good week.